0: Good afternoon, church. Uh, This week, I came across an article. Uh, Vaughn, those are not my slides, but thanks, buddy. You are on the ball today. Uh, (laughs) So I came across an article. Uh, It was published in Psychology Today. The article was titled, Why It's So Hard to Ever... Hello? There we go. All right. So, if you didn't catch that title, it was Why It's So Hard to Ever Feel Satisfied. And as you can guess, it was very positive, extremely uplifting, and just in general, fun to read. Uh, I will spare you the details, but essentially, this article argued that human beings can never be truly satisfied because we are wired, we evolved to be discontent and dissatisfied. So there's nothing we can do. Nowhere you can look to ever find lasting satisfaction. And the author of this article, they argue that this was an aspect of our evolution. And this inability to be satisfied was so that we wouldn't grow content and stop growing and evolving as a species. Now, that solution, or or the solution that he offers to that argument is just as sad as the actual argument, right? He says that we should not let our discontentment defeat us. Instead, keep chasing tiny victories, keep investing into the things that you deem important. And when you achieve things, when you you attain the things that you believe are important, celebrate them, but then identify the next goal, move on to the next thing. Because that victory is not going to satisfy you. That's a very depressing worldview. Now, I do think that this article highlights important truth. There is nothing on earth that provides true and lasting satisfaction. There are many good things, many great things that satisfy us for a short period of time. But always that satisfaction is going to fade. There's no goal you can accomplish, no thing you can attain that will provide you with unfading satisfaction. The article gets that much right. But what's unfortunate is that most people adopt a solution very similar to the one proposed in this article. And they move from thing to thing, relationship to relationship, achievement to achievement, always chasing some little victory, trying to find the next little victory to celebrate. But none of those things deliver lasting satisfaction. So, is there actually any way that we can find satisfaction in this life? Or do we simply exist in this exhausting cycle of chasing one thing after the next, after the next? Today, we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. And actually, the next time I preach, I think I'm going to finish Uh, The rest of John chapter 4. But today, this text shows us that there is indeed real satisfaction. And this text shows us where we can find it. So turn with me to John chapter 4. And we are going to read the first six verses. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Begins shortly after the start of Jesus' public ministry. Just before this, he turned the water into wine, he ran the money changers out of the temple, and as we just saw, his disciples were baptizing many people in Judea. In chapter 3, Jesus speaks with a man named Nicodemus. You guys probably are somewhat familiar with that story. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the ruling body of the Jewish people. Uh, I guess you could say like a Jewish Supreme Court in a way. Uh, he was the peak of Jewish leadership. And so this man comes to Jesus asking about him because Jesus has been doing some pretty crazy things. And, and Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you had to be born again. You had to be born of the spirit. And Nicodemus didn't quite understand this. He, d- he thought he was talking about physical birth. Now that conversation parallels the one that we're going to read about in chapter four. So again, in chapter three, he uses this physical thing, birth, to demonstrate a spiritual truth. And he's going to do something very similar here now in chapter four. But the difference is that Nicodemus was the very top of the social ladder. But the woman he talks to in chapter four is at the very bottom of that social ladder. And this contrast is significant. It'll be even more significant when we talk about the rest of chapter four. But even today, it shows us that Jesus is not concerned with the world's standard of importance. And it shows us that Jesus' offering of living water is available to all people. But before we get to this conversation,
1: John sort of sets the scene for us in
0: these first six verses. So Jesus, his disciples, they were, were baptizing many people, more even than John the Baptist. And this caused the Pharisees to take note. And now the Pharisees they already were a little bit weary of John the Baptist. They didn't quite know what to do with him. But then Jesus shows up and he's causing an even greater stir than John the Baptist. And so once Jesus learns that the Pharisees have taken note, he decides to leave, to, to leave Judea and head 80 miles north to the region of Galilee. And it seems that the reason for this was that he simply wanted to avoid confrontation with the Pharisees at this point because the hour of Jesus' suffering had not yet come. So he decides to move on to Galilee. And the quickest way to get there was by traveling through Samaria. Now if you aren't familiar with the Samaritans, uh, they are the result of the Assyrian Empire conquering the northern kingdom of Israel back in 722 B.C. So a long, long time back. right? They conquered Israel, and then they brought in people from all kinds of different ethnicities, different nations, and brought them all together. And those people intermingled, intermixed, and intermarried, and that led to the Samaritans. So in the eyes of the Jewish people, Samaritans were not Jewish. To quote a, uh, a Jewish historian of that, they, they were a despised and unclean half-breed. The Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. They avoided them as much as they can. They would not eat together. They wouldn't share utensils because they believed it would defile them and make them unclean. So Jesus and his disciples, they come to a town, about halfway between Judah and Galilee, in the heart of Samaria, this town called Sikon. It's very close to a field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And this is a big deal for the Samaritans. This is kind of their, I tell you, the Jews didn't view them as Jewish, but the Samaritans, this was kind of their claim to being Jewish, right? This kind of validated their beliefs. It was, oh, we have Jacob as well. Jacob was a huge deal, he's clearly Jewish, so we have that connection, and they believed that that validated their Jewishness. Now upon making it to this well, Jesus merely sits down. And I like that John includes details like this. He does this through his gospel, right? He likes to display the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God, absolutely, but he is also fully man. And just as you or I would be after traveling about forty miles, he needed a drink. He needed to take a seat. I get I need to take a seat after one mile. So he's doing pretty good. And then John shares one final detail to set the stage for the rest of the chapter. He says it was about the sixth hour. So that means that he was about newlywed. This was in the middle of the day. And this is an important detail. We're going to come back to this. But John is telling us that the well is pretty much empty. There are very few, if any, people at the well right now.
1: How do I know that based on just
0: the time of day? Well, let me tell you about how much I hate yard work. You guys, I hate yard work <laughs> and more than anything. You could ask my wife. It is my least favorite thing. But you know what makes it way worse? When the sun is beating down on my recently balding head that cannot it get sunburned. It's not fun. And it makes it a whole lot less enjoyable. So when I have to do yard work, I like to get up early in the morning when there's not the sun beating down on my head or later in the evening. And the same is true here. When women would go to draw water from the well, they would most often go either in the morning or in the evening when the sun was not so hot. So Jesus is sitting at the well, very few of any people there uh, when he arrives, and now the scene is set for the following conversation. So turn back to John 4 in your Bibles, and let's read verses 7 through 14. <clears throat> A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Life. <clears throat> so a Samaritan woman approaches, she, she's coming to draw water, and when she arrives, Jesus asks this woman for a drink. John knows the disciples were not here him. he had sent them into the city to buy food. Right? So that's why he doesn't ask the disciples for help He asks this woman. But by the woman's response, you can see she's pretty shocked by this conversation. And you might think, well, what's the deal? It's just a drink of water this would be surprising on a couple of levels. First, as we already discussed briefly, as John notes at the end of verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the word that we translate as have dealings with, it literally means to associate with or to keep company. with. Jews and Samaritans did not mix. They did not share meals. They did not share utensils. They were not on friendly terms. They did not tolerate each other. It was, it was not a mixing of Jews and Samaritans here. They avoided them. Some Jews who even thought themselves a little bit more pious, they would travel all the way around Samaria, take a really long way to get from Judea to Galilee, because they didn't want to come anywhere near the Samaritans. But in order for Jesus, for Jesus to take a drink of water, he would have to use her cup or her bucket, thus making himself unclean. This is not the behavior you'd expect from a Jewish man. But a second reason, and maybe even more significant. That it was considered highly improper for Jewish men to speak with women in public. Even even their their wives, it was considered improper to speak to them for a long period of time in public. At least that's what the teachers in Jesus' day taught. So, this exchange here is anything but normal. This is a very unique encounter for the woman. And from the woman's perspective, it's going to get even more abnormal. Because Jesus doesn't even answer her question. Instead of explaining why he's asking for water, he turns around on her and he says, well, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for living water. And the gift of God that he's mentioning here is is the same as the living water that he's speaking about that he's going to unpack a little bit more. So just as he did with Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus is taking a, a physical thing and he's using it to explain a spiritual truth. And like Nicodemus, this woman doesn't quite understand. She thinks that Jesus is just talking about physical water, something that she can actually drink. Now this well was, was likely around 100 feet deep. So the woman points out the obvious. Okay, buddy, well where are you going to get this water from? I don't see a bucket, I don't see a rope. It's a long way down. Where are you going to get this living Water from, and she's right. Without a bucket and a rope, getting water from that well would be very, very difficult. And then she she sort of starts to make almost an accusation toward Jesus. In in the ESV, it translates verse twelve as a simple question, uh, but it's it's almost more of a statement. So in in Greek, uh, this sentence begins with a negative particle, and so what that means is she's already anticipating the answer to this question to be no. So that question she asked, if you could better translate something like, like surely you're not greater than our father Jacob. Right, like so long ago, he gave this well to his sons, his lives, they all drank, and it's still here, providing for us. You're not actually implying that you're greater than Jacob. And again, he doesn't directly answer the question, but his answer is a resounding yes, absolutely I am greater than Jacob, because the water from Jacob's well is like anything else that we find on earth. It provides temporary satisfaction. Every day, the woman has to come back to this well. And she can drink, she can drink again and again, she can drink this well till it was totally dry. You know what would happen the next day? She would grow thirsty. There's nothing special about this water, but the water that Jesus provides offers eternal satisfaction. It says, if you drink what I am offering, you will never get thirsty again. Imagine that. Imagine you drink a glass of water, you never have to drink water again. That's pretty cool, right? But that, that's the imagery that Jesus is using. And he uses the same word for drink here, but he uses two different forms. When he speaks of the Jacob's, well, he's using the participle form, which implies a continuous, a repeated action. When he speaks of the living water, he uses what's called an aorist subjunctive form. And it's telling us this is a singular action. So Jesus is saying, is one taste of the living water that I offer, and you will be totally satisfied. You will need nothing else. And to make it clear again, he's not speaking of physical water, he clarifies it, this living water he speaks of, it will become within the person who drinks it, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So then, what exactly is this living water? Some interpreters, some commentators, argue that this living water represents eternal life itself. And I will push back on that, right? Jesus says that this water wells up to eternal It leads to eternal life. And I think if we look at John chapter 7, we'll get a little bit of a clearer answer. So I want to read from John 7. You can turn there if you'd like. If not, you can just follow along as I read. But John chapter 7, verses 37 and 30, through 39. Jesus says, whoever is thirsty may come to me and drink. I come to Jesus and drink means to believe in him. To believe in who he said he was. To believe in what he reveals about the Father. to believe in everything that he teaches. And the hearts of those who believe in Jesus will overflow with rivers of living water. It says that this overflowing of the water is the Holy Spirit the presence of the Holy Spirit that we be given to all who believe. So the living water Jesus speaks of in John 4 is the presence of the Spirit in us and the new life we live through him. The Spirit's presence in us and the new life we live through him ultimately lead toward eternal life. I'm not saying that there's a number of good we do in that life that give us eternal life. We obtain that through faith. But this uh, living water, the Spirit's presence in us leads toward eternal Life, right, Life. This living water satisfies our deepest needs and our deepest desires. And I love this passage because it, it reminds us of an aspect of Jesus that, that we often overlook. Right? Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins, he offers eternal life, you just mentioned that. He offers righteousness that cannot be attained of our own duty. And those are true things, those are incredible blessings of Jesus that all of us desperately need. But he also offers unfailing satisfaction in a way that nothing else can so number one if you're taking notes jesus offers lasting satisfaction jesus offers lasting satisfaction so throughout this conversation jesus is making a point about the world's inability to satisfy us no one in this room can find lasting satisfaction outside Oh, Jesus. We could swap any of the great things that we love right there in the place of Jacob's wealth. You find satisfaction in your job. You commit to it. You devote your time to it. And man, it feels great when you get the promotion. when You get that recognition. When you lose that job, it's still going to satisfy you. When you retire, when the promotions stop coming, when you start getting pats on the back from your boss, are you still going to be that satisfied with that job? Maybe your satisfaction is tied to Friendships, relationships. You feel so full when you spend time with your close friends. How many of us have felt the, the sharp stab of betrayal from a close friend? Been mistreated by them. Maybe they've moved away. Is it still satisfying them? Now you all know, I love Jack's pizza. More than most things. Few things are more satisfying than a piece of Jets Pizza. When we went to the Van Halen's house a couple weeks ago, uh, they got Jets Pizza and they were very upset because they forgot the pepperoni. I said, Guys, it's okay. It's still Jets. So it was very, very good. But I have yet to have the piece of Jets Pizza that made me never want to eat it again. Even the greatest things in this life offer short term satisfaction. But what Jesus offers is so unique. Because he will not leave you longing for something new or something different. So if you're feeling frustrated, if you're feeling unsatisfied in life, ask yourself, where am I looking for satisfaction? Are you returning to the same earthly goals and pleasures, only to grow thirsty again a short while later? Set your eyes on Jesus. Believe in Jesus, embrace the new life that he offers, because that is where true satisfaction is going to be found. And that doesn't mean that we don't face hardship or disappointment. You can argue that Christians will face those things even to a greater extent than others. Those things happen, but the satisfaction Jesus gives us remains in spite of our circumstances. But before we can accept this gift of living water, we need to recognize our own sinfulness, our own need for Jesus. And this is what Jesus is going to show the woman in the next few verses. So read with me verses 15 through 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. <clears throat> this woman's response to Jesus, it shows us a couple of things. One, she's still not quite picking up what Jesus is putting down. She still thinks this is physical water. She doesn't want to come back and draw water. She doesn't come back to the well anymore. But two... It, it reveals something to us about the shame that this woman is carrying. So remember I told you at the beginning, the fact that she comes out to draw water at the 6th hour of the day was significant. I still say that. This woman is coming out in the middle of the day when all the other women come out in the morning or in the evening. She is deciding to come when there is the least likelihood of her being seen or having to interact with others. And then her chief concern here is she says, give me this water so I don't have to come back here again. This woman does not want to be seen. This woman is hiding from people. And Jesus explains why in the verses we just read. Jesus has never spoken to this woman, but he knows all things. and So he asks the woman, hey, go, go call your husband and bring him here. And the woman tries to be clever and slight, has to avoid the topic. She so, says, well, Jesus, I don't have a husband, so I can't do that for you. And Jesus keeps pressing because he wants to get to the root of this issue. And he points out that this woman doesn't have a husband, but she has to have five husbands. And the one she's living with now, the sixth man, they're not even near. And we don't know for certain exactly what happened in those first five marriages. Maybe she cheated, maybe they cheated, maybe they died, I don't know, either way, I think we can cut the sixth guy over the slack. None of those sound like situations you want to commit um, to. But, no I'm he's still wrong with uh, But But, uh, This text doesn't explicitly say, but I think the context shows us that this woman is an adulterous woman. The woman is hiding. She doesn't want to be seen. She's trying to avoid people because she's ashamed. And is that not our first instinct when we sin? To hide? To conceal it? When Adam leaves sin, the first thing they did was hide from the Lord. This woman is ashamed of her sin and she is hiding. You don't go through five marriages without pain and heartache. This woman is searching for something, looking for something to satisfy. Her. And she's bounced from man to man, marriage to marriage, each time maybe this will be what satisfies. But every single time, it couldn't satisfy. Her, her search for satisfaction ultimately led her into sin and shame. Church, sin never delivers satisfaction of promises. It will always over-promise and under-deliver. It's foolishness for us to search for satisfaction in our sinfulness because sin doesn't have the ability to do that. If we want true satisfaction, we must look to Jesus. But before we do that, our sin must be exposed. If we don't recognize our desperate need for Jesus, we're not going to accept him. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't ignore or gloss over this woman's sin. He brings it right out into the open. But notice the gentleness he does it with. He doesn't heap shame on her. He doesn't ridicule her for it. He exposes it so that she realizes her sin has nothing to offer. She's tried, to be that over and over and her efforts have left her broken and ashamed. Jesus sheds light on her sin so that she can see how desperately she needs the living water Jesus is offering. And not only does our sin fail to satisfy us, it leaves us condemned in our sin, condemned before a holy God. Number two, for taking notes, Jesus exposes our sin to reveal our desperate need for Him. Jesus exposes our sin to reveal our desperate need for Him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Despite how offensive our sin is to a holy God, to spend the messiness, despite the messiness of our life, he sent Jesus to step into the mess, to expose it, to convict us of our sin, so that we could repent and believe in him. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to consider where you're looking for satisfaction. Because you know you haven't found him. You haven't found something that lasts. You look and you look, but no matter what you find, it leaves you wanting. Only Jesus, the living water that he offers, will truly satisfy. And further, without Jesus, there's no forgiveness, there's no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no true satisfaction, so stop looking elsewhere. Come, taste the living water that Jesus offers. Come and see that he is good and that he is satisfying. And, Christian, this is important for you too, because we are so prone to wander, prone to take our eyes off of Jesus and pursue lesser things. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we allow ourselves to be fooled into believing that our sin really does have something good to offer. But in reality, it leaves us ashamed and wanting. And it usually starts with, with small sins or small temptations. Things that they can say, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like, it might be wrong. it's not that wrong. I'm not getting enough attention from my spouse. Can't hurt to flirt with my co a little bit, right? It's harmless fun. I'd really like to make some more money. It would be so much less stressful. I could give my kids all the nice things that I would want to be so much happier. Does it really hurt anybody if I bend the rules to get ahead? It can't hurt just to look at unwholesome things, right? It's just looking. I'm not acting on it after all. But these little sins, they get their hooks into us. And they leave us trapped in this cycle of sin and shame. It makes us want to hide because we're terrified of anybody finding out that sin. But that sin needs to be exposed. It needs to be brought to light because it keeps us from enjoying the satisfaction that's available to us in Christ. So, brother or sister, if that is you, why are you treating the satisfaction that Jesus offers for the shame and guilt that sin offers? Confess that sin, do whatever you need to do to make it right. And yes, there may be consequences for that sin, but again, look at the gentleness that Jesus shows to this woman. He will not keep greater shame on you. He's our advocate before the Father when we sin. So turn from your sin, set your eyes on Jesus, and enjoy the satisfaction available in him. Now looking back at the woman, again, not quite ready to believe. So she tries to shift the subject. She wants to get off of this uncomfortable conversation about her sin. So let's keep re the last part of our passage, verses 19 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this time, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is not here, when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit in spirit and truth, they'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. Truth, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He." So probably equally amazed and concerned that Jesus knew all these details about her, she comes to the conclusion that this man must be some kind of prophet. And so she changes the subject by asking him to weigh in on a pretty significant issue, at least in that day. Where should God's people worship? This was like, when it came to Jews and Samaritans. this was like the hot button issue of their day. So she says, Our fathers, our ancestors, worshiped on this mountain, from the Mount Gerizim. But the Jews insisted on worship, worshiping in the temple, which was located at Mount Moriah. So this would be similar maybe to some arguments between Christians and Catholics. Should the Apocrypha be considered scripture or should it not? It's a big deal. Should we baptize infants? That's a big deal. Only there's a lot more animosity tied to this argument between the Jews and the Samaritans. See, the Samaritans, they only accepted the penitent, the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not acknowledge the writings, they didn't acknowledge the Psalms, the Prophets, or, or anything else as scripture. If you know your Old Testament, First five books don't talk about the temple, right? They have the tabernacle, they don't have the temple, and so their understanding is a little bit lacking here. Now Jesus has got to answer the question, but he doesn't want to get drawn into a, a useless debate, so he keeps the conversation focused in the direction he wants it to go. He explains that the hour is coming when the location of worship will be totally irrelevant, and he goes on to point out that the Samaritans are worshiping what they don't know. The Jews worship what they. Do know. The Samaritans had a restrictive view uh, and understanding of God's revelation. They rejected so much of what God revealed to his people. But the Jews, on the other hand, they had a much greater revelation. And that's because God has chosen to bring salvation from the Jews through Jesus. We can say something similar about Jewish people today. They worship the same God, but because they reject Jesus, they often don't know who God is. They don't even know the God. That worship. So the Jews here have a greater understanding of God's plan and will. And they're correct on this issue of where to worship. But again, it's irrelevant. And Jesus tells a woman in verse 3, the time is not only coming, but the time is here right now that worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth. So the time has come when the location of worship no longer has some of those external rituals of worship. They don't matter because God is seeking true Worshipers. And when, God, or when Jesus says that God is spirit, that, that's a description of his nature, of his being, right? He's a spiritual being. And so worship need not be tied to a single location. What he demands is that we worship in spirit and truth. So what matters is how we worship, and God desires that we worship in spirit and the truth. What does that mean? Well, spirit and truth, they, they're not two separate characteristics of our worship. It doesn't say worship the spirit and worship the truth. We worship the spirit and truth. John Piper explains it as we need a spirit that is made alive and a mind that loves the truth. And I think that's a helpful way to rephrase. But it doesn't fully explain what's going on. Here. Jesus's conversation that I've mentioned already with Nicodemus from chapter three is helpful because there he explains that no one can enter the, the kingdom of God unless they're born again, born of the spirit. In the same way, worshiping in spirit is only possible through the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. It is worship that is performed and carried out through the power and influence of the Spirit within us. So in order to worship in a way that God desires, we must do do so through the influence of the Holy Spirit. As we already saw, the Holy Spirit's presence in us is the living water that Jesus spoke of, and that comes through belief in Jesus. And that's the truth aspect of this. Right? it's believing the truth, believing in Jesus. John 14, 6, what does he say? I am the... Thank you I didn't think anybody was going to get that one. I am the truth, right? John 1, he is the living word of God. The meaning was the word. Jesus is the word of God. God's word is always true. Jesus is the truest and fullest revelation of God, the Father. So worship in spirit and truth. Worship must be enabled by the spirit and on the basis of our faith in Jesus. So this means that God is seeking those who will embrace new life in the Spirit and live in accordance with all that Jesus has revealed and taught. That is true worship. It's a life lived in right relationship with God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, who is given to any who repent and believe in Jesus. Now it's at this point that the, the woman at the well starts to recognize who Jesus is. I don't think she's just trying to change the, the topic here again. I think it's starting to click for her who this man is. And so she brings up the Messiah, sort of to kind of test the waters, right? The Samaritans they believed in a Messiah, not quite in the same way as the Jewish people did, but they still believed in a Messiah. But Jesus takes away any doubt. And he says, "I who speak to you, am He." This is the first time in John's gospel that he says directly that He is the Messiah. But Jesus is so much more than what this woman understood of the Messiah. Jesus brings forgiveness of sins, eternal life, relationship with God. He brings eternal satisfaction. Jesus brings salvation. Next time, as I said earlier, my plan is to look at how the woman responds to this, uh, and how this interaction between Jesus and the woman is also intended as a lesson for his disciples, but for now, Jesus has brought this conversation full circle. He promises true satisfaction through living water that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus. And then Jesus shows that our sin must be exposed so we can see how desperately we need that living water. And now he's showing us how he actually satisfies us. He does it by bringing us into right relationship with the Father. That is what all of us desperately The big idea for today, Jesus offers lasting satisfaction by bringing us into a relationship with God. Jesus offers lasting satisfaction by bringing us into a relationship with God. Humanity was created for a relationship with God. We were designed to know him, to worship him, to serve him. You and I have an innate desire to know God and worship him. That's what we were designed to do. So if we're not doing that, then no matter what we have in this life, no matter how good it is, we are always going to feel as if something is missing. We will feel hollow, we will feel unsatisfied. So our problem is not like the author of the article I shared earlier, that we can't be satisfied. Our problem is that on our own, we are unable to attain what will satisfy us. When Adam Eve sinned, it broke our relationship And now our sinfulness leaves us unable to restore that relationship, but Jesus steps in and offers to fix that for us. The most amazing part of this passage, in my mind, is what he says in verse 23. God is seeking such people to worship him. He's not just saying, oh, well, yeah, it's available, come find it if you want it. God is seeking people like the woman at the well. No one in here can say, God would not want someone like me. Or if he would want someone that has done the things that I have done, you don't know the extent of what I have done. It doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus has done on your behalf and whether you will trust in him. If he desired a relationship with a Samaritan woman who committed adultery with six different men, you're probably okay. I don't think most people here have done that. But that's not the point. The point is, is that Jesus' grace is far greater than our sin. Turn through your sin. Set your eyes on Jesus. I frequently get asked a question from Christians, is God tired of me when I sin? The answer to that is no. He's not tired of you. If he knew every sin you would commit when he sent Jesus to die on the cross? Your sin is not surprising him. He is seeking true worshipers. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to enjoy the satisfaction that comes from that relationship. The feeling you have that you gotta gotta get fixed up, get things right before you come back to God, that is the shame of your sin convincing you to hide What God wants for you, Christians, to accept that sin and worship him in spirit and truth. God desires a relationship with you. He does not want us to waste our life pursuing sinful or meaningless pleasures. He wants us to have a full and satisfying life. Later in John 10, Jesus says that he came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. He wants us to have life to the fullest. But we do that living in right relationship with God. True satisfaction is not about our circumstances. It is about our relationship with God. Your circumstances do not dictate your satisfaction in life. The Apostle Paul's a great great case study for that. Pretty much everywhere he went, they just beat him up and threw him in jail. And he was always pumped about it. He was like, this is awesome. Like, I got this all joy, man. This is great. Because he was living in right relationship with God. He was totally satisfied with his relationship with the Lord. In that relationship, his deepest need was met. And the same is true for us today. So how can one truly be satisfied? Put your trust in Jesus. If you've never done this, I I encourage you to do that today. Come and drink the living water that Jesus offers. Embrace eternal life and eternal satisfaction. And if you're a Christian, you have found yourself pursuing lesser things. Brother or sister, stop. Recognize those things for what they are. Turn your gaze back to Jesus. Make him your greatest pursuit and enjoy the satisfaction that he offers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son, that you sent him confront us in our sin and in our mess, even though we did not deserve, even though we were your enemies, you sent him so that we might have eternal life and have eternal satisfaction. What I pray is, is we go this week that you would help each of us to worship in spirit and truth. Help us to walk before you holy and blameless. And help us to share the good news of the gospel with those around us, to let them know that they too can find true satisfaction in Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.